hope everyone is doing well today. Um, we are back in the book of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 7 today, looking at verses 7 through 12. If you will go ahead and turn with me there. And it's, uh, it's cool because this morning, if you were in discipleship hour, we were in the book of Matthew as well as we go through the New Testament. And so uh, if you were there, you get to have a double dose today. And that's a treat uh, from Matthew. If you've been following long enough with us, following along long enough with us, you'll know we've been in Matthew for a little over two years now. If you've missed anything, go to the website. We got podcasts, we got the videos, check it out, because Ben has done nothing short of a spectacular job in leading us uh, to this point where we're at now. Um, And we should be very thankful and grateful for all the work that he's put in. And uh, just a few weeks ago, Trey even uh, was up here, and he introduced us into chapter 7, which is the very last chapter of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. If you're using a pew Bible and you haven't found it yet, it's on page 812 where we're going to be today. And like I said, this is the last chapter of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And to this point, Jesus has taught us what the kingdom will look like. He's taught us that our character, what our character should look like underneath his kingdom rule. In chapter 5, he gives us the Beatitudes. And the very first attribute that he gives us of character that he's exhorting to us is that that those who are poor in spirit are blessed and the kingdom of heaven is theirs. He teaches us about anger, lust, divorce, loving our enemies, giving oaths. And then in chapter 6... He teaches us how to pray. And we learn that he's our sustainer, that he is our one and only master, and we have nothing to be anxious about. We learned about humility and judgment and using discernment when interacting with those inside and outside the kingdom. And I recap all of these things for you to kind of help paint a broader picture so we, so we have a complete understanding of what Jesus is weaving together here. Jesus wants us to seek the kingdom, and that fits perfectly with this next exhortation on prayer. Would you read with me? Starting in verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And these are such precious words and promises that Jesus gives us here. And and yet sometimes there are some who would treat these words as if it's a, a blank check, right? You can just write out this this blank, there's this blank check there that you can fill in with whatever you want and cash it in at the bank of the Lord. 
Just ask whatever you want. The Lord's going to bless it with, to you right away. You just have to ask him prayer. And if it's not happening, pray more. Pray harder. That's what it means to seek. That, that's what it means to knock. Just knock louder. Petition. And you're going to get that million dollars. Demand it of him. And he will give it to you. You just have to pray harder and he will sign, seal, and deliver on that check for you. If you've heard anything like that or experienced anything like that or been under any of that type of teaching, then you may have been left wondering why your prayers are seemingly left unanswered. You may have been left discouraged. You might be left distraught thinking, this just doesn't work. I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed for fill in the blank. I prayed that my loved one wouldn't pass away. I prayed that ends would meet. I prayed that my friend is, but my friend is still an unbeliever. And why am I not seeing these things happen immediately right now? When we approach prayer in this sort of way and we look at what the text says outside of the intended context of what Jesus has placed it in, then we're setting ourselves up for great disappointment. And we're going to come back to this a little bit later, but first, let's understand exactly what's being taught here. Jesus is explaining why prayer is necessary for those in the kingdom of God. Now, disclaimer, I'm all over the place and I got a bunch of notes. So if you can't follow along with what's on the screen, don't feel bad about it. Don't feel uh, discouraged. I've got printed out version right over here. So just come see me afterwards. Gary's going to put it up online as well. But just know I'm sorry ahead of time. First, let's understand the text, okay? Jesus provides promises to our persistent prayers. In verse 7 and 8, we have these three actions that are taking place. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock, it will be opened. And what we have here is Jesus setting a foundation of calling his people to come to God in prayer. These ideas of asking, seeking, and knocking, they're not three separate things. They're not three separate things that we should be doing in prayer, but rather it's meant to emphasize to us this idea of constant, unending prayer. Jesus is emphasizing the importance of being in persistent prayer and communion with the Father. This also helps us understand if we look at Luke chapter 11, uh, verses 5 through 9, you don't have to turn there, but when we look at that, we can see the impudent or the, the, the persistent friend asking for loaves of bread. The idea is that we can come to God with our innermost and deep needs and we can be persistent about it. We should pay attention to what happens when we pray. The promise is that if you ask, you will receive. If you seek, you will find, and if you knock, it will be opened. Receiving, finding, opening. He promises to give us what we pray for. Again, it's not a blank check prayer request. 
I'm going to get to that and address that. But this is a good promise that Christ is sharing with those in his kingdom. And we should find rest that he will fulfill his word. He then describes God as a generous and approachable father. And he doesn't stop making promises. He doesn't just make these promises and he doesn't stop there. He then establishes what kind of relationship that we can have with the father through prayer, right? And it's beautiful because he begins by having us reflect on our own relationships with our own parents and our own children, He appeals to our humanity and our human relationships to help us understand what he means by this. If you have a kid that asks you for bread, which of you are going to give him a stone? If if they ask for a fish, who's going to give him a snake? The answer to that is nobody, right? I hope not. Nobody is going to do that. Nobody would ever think for a second to give something useless or harmful to their child, especially when it's something that they need that they are asking for. A parent who loves their child provides for them without withholding and wouldn't give something hurtful. He uses this to prompt us to connect our minds with our own relationships with our parents and our parents' care. But you and I, we're fallen, right? We live in a a fallen world, and we're tainted by sin. But even you and I, we're still able to give care, and we give good things to one another, right? You work hard to provide for your family and put food on the table. You give gifts to your friends. You give rides where needed. You're that shoulder to cry on. We're able to do those things for one another. And they're spectacular and wonderful. But still, even though those are good things, we're human, right? It's still tainted by sin and skewed. And that's what Jesus is saying, that even though we are, uh, if you then who are evil, excuse me, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, how much more will your Father who is in heaven Give good things to those who ask him. He is teaching us to understand and have a right disposition towards God the Father. It's meant to help us understand the heart of our Father. And also that our Heavenly Father is not the same as our earthly Father. Here's what I mean. For some of you, you grew up with a present and very loving dad. He was at every basketball, baseball game, ballet recital, tucked you in bed at night and prayed over you, showed what it was like to love your mother, shared the gospel with you regularly. For others, no matter if it was by choice or by chance, your father wasn't present. He may not have been there. Or maybe he was physically present, but due to whatever circumstances, there was always a difficult relationship between you and him. 
Neither of these two situations could be you. You might fall somewhere in between. I don't know. But the point that I would like to make to you is that we tend to take our relationship with our own dads here on earth and we begin to think of our relationship with God the Father in the same way. We don't always verbalize it. And sometimes, but sometimes we may consciously apply our experiences with our human dads here and apply that to God. That's what Christ is dismissing here. When we look at the relationship that those within the kingdom have with God the Father, then the opinion that we carry of what a good father should look like doesn't matter if we are basing it on our own experiences with our own fathers here, no matter how good, no matter how bad, because both are tainted by sin. Christ reminds the audience of this so they understand how much greater the forethought, how much greater the knowledge, how much greater the love is from our God who is untainted by sin and is above all things, how much greater those gifts are. He's saying your Father in heaven is ready, willing, and able to bring you the best. The best is yet to come. We are able to go to the Father in prayer with full confidence, knowing that He will respond to us. And there's something to be said here when we look at this text and we put it up against Luke chapter 11 that I, I just referred to. Uh, we have this friend relationship and we have a parent and child relationship. And we already looked at the parent-child relationship some, but when we add this friendly relationship in here, one thing that we can draw out is that we do not have to be shy or timid or insecure when we come to God in our prayer. And that's key. Jesus is telling us to be persistent. Somebody who is shy, somebody who is timid or insecure, are they usually persistent? No. He's telling us that God is approachable and he hears our requests and we can go to him in that way and share our most personal and intimate needs just as we would a friend or a parent. Next, we, we really need to understand here what good means. And we need to look at good as it's defined for us in the Gospels. If you'll briefly look at Luke eleven thirteen again, it says nearly the exact same thing as it does here in Matthew, but with one exception. It says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So here in, in Luke, we understand good things to be the Holy Spirit. Well, what does the Holy Spirit give to us? So much, so much. It's an abundance of things. He gives us the spiritual gifts as outlined in 1 Corinthians. He gives us in Acts 1.8, he gives us the power to endure and boldness and witness. 
in Galatians, in chapter 5, when the Spirit is active in our lives, He gives us love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. I think we would agree that those are good gifts and are worthy of prayer. But do we actually pray for them? When we look through the book of Matthew, there's a regular pattern of helping us understand what good actually means. And we have to look at it through the lens of the kingdom, right? We can look at Matthew 5.45 and understand that good there is referring to the people in his kingdom who obey his word. And then in chapter 7, verses 17 through 18, not to steal from your sermon tray, sorry, but we understand that a good tree that is part of the kingdom will inevitably, inevitably, inevitably bear good fruit, which that's this, there's this natural and amazing reaction action of feeding and caring for others that's happening there. We see the same things in chapter 12 being taught, verses 33 through 34. And when speaking with the rich young ruler in chapter 19, verse 17, he points to the kingdom of God as being the only true good. Knowing these things helps us to have a right perspective of what good actually is. And it also teaches us how to better pray for good things. I do not wish to confuse you with this. Jesus is not solely talking, though, about spiritual matters when he says that God will give you good gifts. When we look at the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount, it is clear that Jesus does exhort us to pray for material provisions. Give us this day our daily bread. Look at the birds of the air. Do they, do they neither sow nor reap nor gather into the barn, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more worthy than they? He does exhort us to pray for material provisions. In studying this, I came across, um, I came across this from, from Piper, and I thought it was just too good to not share with you. He says this, When you pause to consider that God is infinitely strong and can do all that he pleases, and that he is infinitely righteous so that he does only what is right, and that he is infinitely good, so that everything he does is perfectly good. And that he is infinitely wise, so that he always knows perfectly what is right and good. And that he is infinitely loving, so that in all his strength and righteousness and goodness and wisdom, he raises the eternal joy of his loved ones as high as it can be raised. And when you pause to consider this, then the lavish invitations of this God to ask him for good things with the promise that he will give them is unimaginably wonderful. When you pause to consider this, then the lavish invitations of this God to ask him for good things with the promise that he will give them is unimaginably wonderful. Piper goes on and adds that one of our greatest tragedies, though, 
is that there's little desire to accept that invitation, to accept that invitation to pray. This, this gift that God has freely given to us to accept, sin has caused us to think and to believe that there are reasons as to why prayer doesn't work. And there's a number, there could be a number of reasons here as to why we decline that invitation. Maybe one of these is something you've thought before. Perhaps you're one that says, if God already knows what we need, what's the purpose, right? What's the purpose? Yes, our God is an omniscient God. Matthew 6, 8, just the chapter before, says that he knows what we need before we ask him. And we should take great comfort in that. Prayer's not meant to enlighten him of anything that he might be forgetting, because he's not. However, it's when we pray that we are able to humble ourselves before an almighty, all-knowing, and holy God. Because our dependence is not on ourselves, but in him alone. It's in this conversation with our Lord that we're communicating a conscious need and a humbled reliance on him. Recall the friend and the parent-child relationship. Just because somebody already knows what you're going through doesn't mean that you don't stop talking to them about it. Right? Your best friend knows what you're going through. Your husband or your wife, they know what you're going through. You don't ever stop talking to them about it. And when we do so with our good father and we continue talking with him about it, our hearts and minds are then set upon him and his kingdom and our prayers begin to look more kingdom-minded rather than all about ourselves. Maybe you say, well, others are able to go through life without prayer, so prayer is just unnecessary. They're able to garner and gain all this stuff. They're able to make it. They're surviving. Why do I need it? Are you seeing that others are getting food on the table through hard work just like you, but they aren't praying for it? That they're gaining the wealth and status and power without prayer. So why should you? Brothers, sisters, if these are serious questions in your mind, then I'd ask you to remember this. We do not pray because we are always concerned that we're going to starve or that the money is going to run out in our bank accounts. We don't pray just for that. Sure, there are moments that we pray for those things, but we pray because we're acknowledging our dependence on Him and not self for all things. It's an acknowledgement of that dependence that we have on Him. If we go back to the Lord's Prayer, Jesus wove a prayer together that spoke both of God's material gifts such as bread, and, and spiritual gifts, such as forgiveness and deliverance from evil. And to those who call themselves Christians here, did you not pray for the work of the Lord in your life and for His salvation in your life? I think that speaks volumes. speaks volumes that prayer is necessary 
It is completely necessary for us to pray and seek him because without doing so, we're lost. We're confused. And that's another reason why he's exhorting us to be persistent in our prayer. In order to keep our eyes and our hearts and our minds on the kingdom of heaven, we should be in constant prayer for the spirit to guide us and to move us. But if we stop praying and we begin looking at others and their so-called prosperity without prayer, then I think what you'll find is that it's not actually prosperity at all, but rather it's emptiness from a world that offers nothing. Prayer is absolutely necessary. Have you ever thought, prayer never works. I prayed for this and this and this. You fill in the blanket. Just, it never happened. Why should I keep trying? Remember when I talked about prayer being used as a blank check earlier? Um, sometimes, you know, sometimes if you're a parent, your kid will come to you and they'll, they'll beg for a piece of candy. And let's, let's just say you, you oblige and you allow it. They, they get that piece of candy. Everyone's good, right? No, because 10 minutes later, they're going to come and they're going to ask for, I don't know, uh, a cookie. Um, it kind of depends on the day. Maybe I'll let them have a cookie as well. It's only 10 minutes later, but maybe I'll let them have a cookie. But suppose 10 minutes after that cookie, they've had the piece of candy, they've had a, they've had a cookie. 10 minutes later, they come asking, Mom, Dad, can I have an ice cream sundae? I think, or at least I hope, <laughs> I think that all of us might say, that sounds really good, but no, you're done. We have enough wisdom to know that that's a lot of sugar in a short amount of time, and it's probably not healthy. When we're saying no in that moment, it's a mercy to the child. No matter what they think about us, they could think that we're being mean. They could think that we're being cold-hearted. We could think that they could think whatever they want, but really it's a mercy to the child to not allow them that ice cream. And it's the same when we pray to our Father. We are not all-knowing, and we can never be all-knowing. Only God has the knowledge of what is truly good for us. We are not infinitely righteous good, wise, strong, or loving. And it is, it is, it's a difficult pill to swallow knowing that some of the things you ask and plead for may not happen. It's exceptionally difficult and it tests, it tests our faith. But if we're honest here, we shouldn't want God to grant everything to us. We don't want him to grant everything we ask for. I promise you that. He's not a genie that snaps his fingers for you at any moment. Remember verse 11. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? He's infallible. He knows what is good and what is not good for us. And we cannot bear that same burden of wisdom that he holds. I want to look at this next part, though. I want to look at the encouragement of Christ's words here. Um, I, I cannot 
stand here and assure you that the prayer you're praying is going to be answered right this instant. I can't do that. That would be foolish, it would be irresponsible, and it would be a lie. Yet, I want for you to recognize what Jesus is saying here. I want you to see his encouragement. His exhortation to ask, seek, and knock is meant to press us further into him. And if you and I are active and persistent in dealing with the pains of seeking after his will through prayer and through meditation on his word, then the kingdom of God will be revealed to us. That is a good gift. In order to understand God and in order to receive the good gifts from him, we must first humble ourselves and understand that he will cause his own will to prevail. When we are discouraged because there's seemingly no answer, the problem doesn't lie with him and the truth of his promise. That's not where the problem is. The problem lies with you and I's limited understanding. And that is why Christ exhorts us here. You don't know what you don't know and you need to keep asking. You don't know what you don't know and you need to keep seeking. You don't know what you don't know. You need to keep knocking. And when you do over time and by the working of His Spirit in your life, you will receive such good gifts. You will know that the Father has always had your best interest at heart and that all he's done is to bring good to you. He will answer faithfully to you, but are you asking? J.I. Packer says this in regards to when there seems to be no answer. He says, Perhaps God means to strengthen us in patience, good humor, compassion, humility, or meekness. Perhaps he has new lessons in self-denial and self-distrust to teach us. Perhaps he wishes to break us of complacency or undetected forms of pride and conceit. Perhaps his purpose is simply to draw us closer to himself. Or perhaps he's preparing us for forms of service, which at present we have no inkling for. Ultimately, we do not know, so we keep seeking the kingdom. When God does say no to you, he is always doing so with the end purpose, with an end purpose that we cannot see. And in that, we should take comfort. We should take comfort knowing that he is able to see much further than we. Now, purpose of the golden rule. This sermon is not just over uh, 7 through 11. We have this verse 12, and, and I think we kind of disjoint it a little bit uh, sometimes because in our Bibles, it's a completely different section, uh, probably in most of our Bibles. And so we need to understand what this verse means in context of uh, the rest uh, that we've looked at. Now, this is a very well-known verse, uh, and, and last time we were actually in Matthew, we had another very well-known verse, judge not, lest you, uh, uh, judge not that you be not judged. And, and now we have in verse 12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also 
to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This moral exhortation that Christ gives on the surface, it might seem out of place, but really it just begins the summary of what the Sermon on the Mount is calling the people of the kingdom of God to. That's why there's that word so right there at the beginning. This word is key because it's here in verse 12 that I believe the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount comes to its pinnacle. Okay? All that's been taught up to this point in Jesus' sermon has been to lay out the identifiers and the conduct of those who are part of the kingdom of heaven, of those who are disciples of Christ. It directs us as his disciples in how we should live among and relate to others. This direction that is given also implies that we're not meant to be isolated. Okay? Rather, we are to be in good community with others where we can be doing great good and show great generosity to all. There was a, uh, it was a very similar phrase uh, in Jewish, Jewish circles, and it's been attributed to a, a couple of different individuals, but the phrase goes something like this. Do not do to others what you yourself dislike. And on the surface, that seems to kind of be saying the same thing. But there's a very distinct difference between that and what we know as the golden rule. And we're going to call, do not do to others what you yourself dislike. We're going to call that the, the, the negative version, if you will. Okay, We're going to call that the negative version. This negative version urges the individual to withhold doing harm to another person because they surely wouldn't want that harm reciprocated or done to them, right? This negative version is an urging to withhold and, and not act upon one's natural abilities as sinful, evil doers. But this positive version that Jesus thrusts out here is not a call to stand idly by or to just withhold natural evil tendencies. No, no, no. Instead, in this positive statement, he takes things further, much further, and it pierces our hearts because we have to understand that we must be a people of action, a people of action that are seeking out ways to be generous, to care, to love on, and to share the burdens of others, to weep alongside of, to lift up, others. This golden rule, this statement is a call to action, not just withholding. But how, how can we do that? How can we do that? Well, for one, we, we have a great example and a promise made to us in the few verses preceding this because our good father first gives us good gifts. We now not only have an example to follow, but we are able to do good because the Lord has first been so generous to us. His goodness in giving us the kingdom is the grounds for us living out the kingdom's values in doing good to our neighbor. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repeat that, okay? Pay attention here. His goodness in giving us the kingdom is the grounds 
for us living out the kingdom's values in doing good to our neighbor. Hold on, though. We're, we're missing something here. Now, remember, the whole, the whole Sermon on the Mount is, is, is about to come to a close. We're in the last chapter, and Jesus is, is summarizing and emphasizing things as he's drawing to an end. But what does it mean by saying, this is the law and the prophets? This statement, this is the law and the prophets, this statement is the closure to what was opened up in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. If you want to flip a page or two back, let's look at that. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on through the sermon. He doesn't dismiss the law and the prophets, but instead he, br- instead he brings them to their intended goal in what the expectation of his true disciples, of, in the true expectation of his true disciples of the kingdom of heaven. He brings it to its intended goal. That's, that, just, just look at all of the you have heard it said statements following that. Throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, we see people crying to God for help, crying out for deliverance, crying out in pain and sorrow, crying out for a Savior. But even in the midst of them crying out for that help, they still wanted things their way. They wanted things their way in the desert, so they built a golden calf. They wanted things their way when the nations had human kings to lead them. So they petitioned for a human king instead of God as their king. And they petitioned for one, and they got Saul. And the subsequent kings thereafter fell short and continued, and and the nation of Israel continued to look to the other nations for answers because they didn't feel that God had their best interest in mind. Yet little did they know that through their small-minded requests for human kings and their rebellious actions that they're crying out and, and through their crying out and wondering if God is even hearing them, little did they know, little did they know that God was working through all those things to bring about a Savior in the world in Jesus Christ. And it is because Jesus lowered himself for us. It is because he fulfilled the law. It is because of these things that we are now justified and made new in him. Because of this, we are now his disciples, his co-heirs in a kingdom greater than we can ever imagine. This is what it means by this is the law and the prophets. We can now go out and do good things. We can be active in our neighborhoods, in our family, in our workplaces. We can bless others because we have been blessed first. We can show off Christ's example of humility 
and love to all people because that is what we want in return and that is what we get from our good Father. I gotta take a breather. Sometimes I get really intense, I've been told, and I just need to, need to dial back for a second. That is the necessity of prayer. It's not ever untimely. It's not ever without purpose. And it's never ineffective. Through the blessing and privilege of prayer, we can communicate with our good Father who blesses us with the things that we need to be sustained so that we in turn can also do good to others because he's first done good to us. So, if you are not in Christ, then you need to know that the greatest gift of all time is Jesus Christ. There is nothing on this earth, there is no gift on this earth that can satisfy us. No power, no money, no fame, no relationship, nothing, no gift on earth is good enough. It is only through the work of Jesus Christ, the greatest gift from the Father, that we can come to the realization of what is truly good. As Christ followers, this exhortation from Christ should do a few things for us. And I'll end here. First, it should drive us to repentance. We should repent for our sins. And more specifically, we should repent for neglecting a free and good blessing of prayer. Second, it should provide comfort and it should humble us before an almighty God. It should comfort and humble us before an almighty God whose knowledge and wisdom knows no boundaries. Remember that it is a great mercy that we do not get all that we ask for. And third, it should realign us. It should realign us with the kingdom vision. It should realign us with the kingdom's vision so that we can take action. When we are looking to Christ and receiving his good blessings, we can't help but turn around and reciprocate it to those around us. That is why we need prayer. And may we cling to Christ's exhortation here and accept this blessing of prayer.